Welcome back to the KPL Podcast. I'm your host, Jagisha. This week on the podcast, I have best-selling author of The Paris Bookseller, The Kennedy Debutante, The Girl in White Gloves, Carrie Mayer. And we are going to be talking about her latest novel, All You Have to Do is Call. This was an interesting interview about the Jane Collective. And I'm just going to get started and dive in. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you today. So to start off with, I always like to orient my listeners to what the book is about. So tell us about the book. So this book, All You Have to Do is Call, is uh, loosely based on the real life women of the Jane Collective, which was an underground women's abortion clinic in the days before Roe. Unlike my first three novels, which were biographical fiction about real life women like Grace Kelly and Kick Kennedy, this novel has characters who are entirely fictional. So I take the the sort of milestone moments and the idea of the real life Jane Collective and use it to inspire this fictional cast of characters. And I have three point of view narrators, Veronica, who's one of the founders of Jane, Patty, who's a very old lifelong friend of Veronica's and they're having some friendship difficulties. And the the third uh, narrator is a young English professor um, at the University of Chicago named Margaret. So what brought you to write about this story? So what inspired the story basically? Yeah. So um, in the before times of 2018, (laughs) I was driving to be before many things, really. I was driving to meet a friend for a movie and I was listening to NPR as I often do. And um, I heard the most amazing news story about, you know, one of those narrative news stories about the women of the Jane Collective. And I had never heard of them before. And as they, it was one a pretty long piece. And as I'm driving and listening to the amazing things that they did, you know, they started as a referral service. These were like college students who were referring, who found safe abortion providers in the city of Chicago to refer other young women to, which sort sort of very much organically grew to be a fully functioning kind of proto-planned parenthood family planning clinic. They, the women of Jane ultimately took over offering the abortions themselves. They stopped being a referral service. They were, these were regular women, like just like me who learned how to give this procedure, but they also did things like they gave pap smears and offered birth control counseling and some STD screening. So it was really an amazing service to the to Chicago that they were offering. Yeah, I think what struck me was how much of the procedures the women were going to take on. So, could you tell us a little bit mo- more about what life was like for ni- for women in 1971? Wow. Yeah. So, you know, I <laughs> I, I looked up the now the National Organization for Women, um, their their original um, statement from 1966. Okay, and they this is Betty Friedan and Polly Murray who are writing this right in the in the late 60s, and they talk about you know one of the things that they mention is that women um, in general for the same position make 60 percent of what men make. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, by the way, it's only 82%. So progress, but not equality. Also in 1971, women could not um, get their own credit card without a male co-signing, which also made it very difficult for them to own their own apartments or even get a lease on their own apartments. So it was really hard for um, single women in particular to um, make their way in the world, right? And I think it was still incredibly common for women to kind of get 
women who were going to work to get kind of shuttled into the caretaking professions of, you know, nursing and teaching and other um, professions of that nature. And that was something else that the now statement also um, discussed is that even professions that had once been dominated by women um, by the late 60s were being taken over by men. And that was something that really worried them. So instead of women um, making progress in all areas of the workplace, they were getting kind of shunted out of it. Yeah, I think that was the thing that struck me when uh, your character, Margaret, and she was talking, she had just moved to Chicago and was talking about how she was there for for getting the birth control pill at a doctor's and yeah. she couldn't get a credit card. I mean, she was a professor at the University of Chicago. It was mind blowing. Yes. But, you know, I should also add that while I made it sound very dire a second ago, and it was dire in a lot of ways, there was real optimism also in 1970 and 1971 that that things were changing for the better. You know, now had been established, you know, you know, millions of women had read um, Betty Friedan and and Susan Sontag and, um, you know, the Child Care Development Act, which would have offered um, universal child care and preschool, was was on the table. It passed the House and the Senate, only to be vetoed by Richard Nixon. The ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, there was real hope that that was going to be fully ratified and made law. That there's a complicated history of the ERA. It was not. It it is actually now ratified, although it was too it was ratified by the right number of states too late, and so it is now kind of languishing in a legal legal limbo. <laughs> but anyway, so there was and there were marches. You know, the famous 1970 March on Washington, which so many wonderful slogans that women carried on that march, like you know, don't iron don't iron while the strike is hot. Um, I just love that. Yeah. So, well, that's, you know, that's good to know that there was more optimism, although I feel like 2023 is, there's a lot of similarities between the two time periods right now, especially because of the overturning of Roe. And actually I read more about the Comprehensive Child Development Act and I thought, you know what, it would never pass in Congress today. If it had come up today, wouldn't happen. No, that's right. People can't see me. I'm nodding my head vigorously to everything you're saying. Yeah, there are, you know, this, this sort of like side by side, optimism that like women are banding together to help other women and there's a real optimism and 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 hope in that but at the same time the law <laughs> um and the government are not cooperating they are not on the same page um and you know the question is always how to get them to listen um and you're right i don't think i don't even think that a comprehensive child care development act would pass the house and senate today or even most of the years of my lifetime, I don't think mm-hmm. it would have passed. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the women were willing to take on the medical procedures, the DNC, the, the basically the abortion. Um, that was also another thing that was struck me. I'm like, I don't think I could ever do that. I mean, as much as I'd want to help women, I would be so scared out of my mind. They were incredibly brave <laughs> to take it on. Yeah, they were. And, you know, I don't know whether or not I... so. I'm not sure I would have been able to do quite that level of of care either, but this was one of the wonderful things about Jane is that there were many ways to be involved. Mm-hmm. It was in you know at its peak, it was an enormous organization. There were volunteers who basically purchased things, right? Like tissues and they did laundry and bought Kotex and made sure that they had speculums and, and, you know, they went to the medical, um, there was a, 
you know, a medical office that supplied them with um, tetracycline and other things like that. There were women who drove. There were women who offered their apartments. There were um, women who answered the phones and made calls back. So there were many, I think, like to think of it as sort of concentric circles. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, so there's this, the biggest circle is, are the women kind of on the periphery of the organization. And then you, you get closer to the center and there's a much smaller number of women who are actually, you know, holding hands um, and providing the procedure in, in the room. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, and they needed everybody it's really, um, you know, to use the NPR analogy, they, they, every little bit of help and volunteerism made a difference mm-hmm. in the running of this organization. Yeah. And the other thing that had struck me as I was reading this was the number of procedures that they were performing. That also yeah. like blew my mind. It, it is, it is in fact, mind blowing. You know, they, the, the estimates, of course, they can't do a real count because they couldn't keep true records because of the secrecy. Um, but the estimates now are like 10 to 11,000 abortions that they either referred or provided between yeah. the late 60s and early 70s. It's true in just in one major American city. Mm-hmm. Pretty, It's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. So now your three characters, are they based on some of the women who ran the, the actual Jane Collective? They are not. They, I mean, they really are women that I made up. In fact, you know, the the real life women of Jane were for the most part younger than the women I was right. I'm writing about. Um, When I thought about writing this book, one of the, I really, really wanted the women involved with Jane to be mothers already. And so I needed to kind of age them up. So my, my characters are right around 30. Um, so, which I think was appropriate kind of for the, for the time. Um, these days, they'd probably be a little older for the place in their life that they are in the book. Um, but no, I, I, I purposely wanted to use a fictional cast of characters so that I could really explore these themes freely. Um, I really enjoyed my first three novels writing biographical fiction, and I may go back to that at some point, but um, I really wanted the challenge of being able to um, explore themes and lives without being tethered to a real life. Yeah, that makes sense. And I know that the founder is still alive, the founder of Jane. Booth. Booth. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, she is. She and she's, you know, very much alive and well and 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 a lobbyist and um advocating for our right. You know, the world we live in owes a lot to her. So as a librarian, I gotta ask, what type of research did you do? Like what type of documentation <laughs> were you able to find since they didn't keep records? Yeah. So, um, so two women who, who worked in Jane have written, um, nonfiction accounts of their experience. Mm-hmm. Um, one is, um, by Laura Kaplan and the other one is by Judith Arcana. Um, and they, those are both terrific books. You know, I also read, um, some nonfiction books about sort of just the history of abortion in America, which were very informative, there's a the Chicago Women's Liberation Union, which I do talk about in in the novel, um, has a website, and I visited that many times to kind of check some facts and and do some preliminary research to find out more about that organization. 
I watched a few documentaries um, just to sort of get the the sort of feel for what this moment felt like, um, not just for women, but for the country. There was a great um, Apple television documentary called 1971, The Year That Music Changed Everything. I think mm -hmm. I got that subtitle right. And that was fascinating. I mean, you know, that was a, it was a multi-part documentary series that really talked about the music and the television and the movies at the time that gave me a, a really nice feel for just sort of how people were talking and what they were wearing and what what life felt like. And there was also another documentary that was great called She's Beautiful When She's Angry, which was about the 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 feminist movement in the early 70s and they talked a lot about Jane in that documentary. So those are some of the highlights. Okay, so and then the other thing I think is very interesting was the the way you sort of established sort of the the belief systems between some of the women. So Patty's belief systems versus Veronica. So it's kind of it was nice to see this interesting dichotomy of of women. And even though they're both almost in the same place in their lives. Yeah. So tying this back to the research, I think one of the most interesting things that I discovered in my research was just how differently women thought about abortion, women and men, everybody really thought about abortion in the 1970s than the way we do now. It was just much more matter of fact. It was, it was really thought of as healthcare and the way feminists and um, people who are trying to legal, you know, officially legalize abortion. They just talked about it as it's women's health care. It is bodily autonomy. It was all tied up in the women's um, liberation movement and feminism and equal rights and all these things that we say we believe in. <laughs> but today, the way abortion is talked about, and really most of my lifetime starting, you know, in the eighties, when I kind of became aware of this stuff, um, I was born in 1975. So was that abortion was really something, um, it was a terrible secret. It was a, you know, it was all, it's all tied up in the language of life. And, you know, that is because of the self-styled quote, people can't see me, but I'm putting rabbit ears around the term pro-life, right. Which kind, which really took over, the conversation around abortion and made it into something different than it was in the seventies. So something I really had to be aware of, you know, I couldn't, I didn't want to use the, or I, I actually couldn't and be historically accurate, use the language of the pro-life movement to talk about abortion, which was, which was um, ironically to use the word liberating. It was liberating to be able to do that, to be able to talk about abortion in different terms and the women of Jane really believed that an abortion did not have to be the worst day of a woman's life. Um, it could be a passage into a better life for a woman because she was not, not because of the procedure itself, but because it meant that she was really taking control of her body and her destiny. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I did find that very interesting. The, the, the use of the language and sort of the thought processes of that time period, um, especially because it's so different from, yeah, I was born in 1977. So yeah, my whole life, the same thing, like the, the views of uh, the two sides are very different now, I think, than they were. Yeah. You know, and uh, like th this took many drafts for me to get right, I have to say. And in early drafts, you know, my beta readers, feminists all and, you know, pro pro choice all kind of read some of it and were like, really? <laughs> Did they really talk about it and think about it this way? And I'm like, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I, and so, you know, I had to really work to make to make that believable. Um, 
to make it, I think, interesting and uh, maybe surprising, like mm-hmm. it was to you, to a modern reader, but also believable. Yeah. Yeah. I have to agree with that. I looked at, so I guess I was looking at the, in terms of feminism and looking at like the third wave of feminism, and I guess we're now in the fourth wave of feminism, but I almost feel like we've gone backwards uh, to the third wave. <laughs> what are your <laughs> thoughts on that? Can you say a little bit more about that? I'm sort of curious to know what aspects you're talking about when you're talking about like the third and fourth wave and going back. Well, I was thinking about in terms of reproductive rights. So I feel like that part of it, it seems like we're going backwards because that's what really what the third wave was about, about women taking over, taking control of their body and having their reproductive rights. Uh, And that's why in 72 and Roe passed, it sort of just seemed to make sense. But now we've gone backwards. We have, yeah. So, right. Exactly. I mean, I I do, one of the things that I am noticing, um, especially post Dobbs is that, you know, the reproductive justice movement and the, and the feminist, you know, feminist project, which has become much more inclusive, Mm -hmm. um, and centering of, of women of color deservedly, you know, there's been, you know, many important changes um, to the movement, especially in the last ten years, but but also um, since Dobbs, you know, these are these are important changes, and to go, and there's also been a kind of reclaiming of the language around reproductive justice. Mm-hmm. I don't hear as many people in the movement talking about um, even using the, the language of life to talk about abortion. We are talking about it as healthcare, like mm-hmm. that. that is the language now. So there's a, there's a, even though it's not a reclaiming of the language and, um, and focus to what it was in the seventies, it's moving it into a new 21st century language that is, I think, workable to, to everybody who might need reproductive health care in the 21st century. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's taking it out of the hand. It's taking the language of reproductive justice out of the hands of people who don't want us to have it. Yes. Yes. Well, I know we only had 20 minutes, so I'm going to say thank you so much for your time. And I really enjoyed the book and I learned so much because there's so much that I hadn't known. Thanks. You know, there was so much that I hadn't known either. And um, I was really felt privileged that I got to do this learning and write this novel. I mean, since Dobbs, I feel like Jane has been more in the in the news than it was back in 2018 when I first discovered them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I hope that this isn't the only book that people read or, you know, there's been some great films about Jane. Um, one of the things I say in my author's note is that I really feel like they are like the Knights of the Round Table. I think that they are deserving of many, many stories. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. There should be more books coming out about it. Thanks so much for having me. Wasn't that a great interview? Coming up in October, October 12th at 7 p.m. at the Kirkwood Performing Arts Center, we have our One Author, One Kirkwood event featuring award-winning author Morgan Tolte. His book, Night of the Living Res, is a collection of short stories that we'll be discussing during the event. If you are interested in receiving a free copy then I have a little drawing for you. All you have to do is write to me, leave a comment, ask a question about future authors, past authors, anything. Just write to me at podcast at kplmo.org and your name will be entered in the drawing to get a free copy of The Night of the Living Res by Morgan Tilty. Thanks for listening. 
and stay tuned for next week. It is going to be our 200th episode of the KPL podcast. And I'm going to have a very special guest on. Join us next week to learn who it is.